The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Guessing the hymn is always tough. So think, that's three this year I've gotten. Amen. I haven't passed yet, but we'll get there. God is good. All right, I invite your attention this morning to the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we have just started a 10-part series over the Ten Commandments, one commandment per week. And we are in the second book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible or you're not sure, those blue Bibles in front of you, you're welcome to use. Please feel free uh, to use those as you can. Uh, but we are in the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, the second book of the Bible, Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers, and we're in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3 this morning. You know, before we get started, I do want to uh, just give a little uh, PR to this. In a couple weeks, we're going to have a fun uh, but gospel-centered day at at our church. Uh, On October 9th, as has been announced many times, uh, we're having a baby dedication, five babies. Can you believe that? Five babies will be dedicated here at 1020 on uh, two weeks from today. We usually start at 1030, Baptist folks. I'm going to ask you to do something totally crazy. You're going to start 10 minutes early, right? And that means we can preach 10 minutes longer. Amen? Yeah, everyone smiles and laughs and shakes their fists. But uh, we will dedicate at 1020 a.m. on Thursday, or, uh, Sunday, October 9th. We'll also have a guest speaker that day, Dr. Tom Johnson from the seminary will be filling in. And we will be uh, holding a church picnic after that as well. And we'll announce something special for you a little later in the service with uh, another thing we're doing that day. But October 9th, two weeks, food, fun, fellowship, and mostly God's Word. And uh, I don't know what more you could ask for. Uh, The Royals aren't going to the playoffs, so don't ask for that. And the Chiefs lost last week, and they're going to beat the Jets today or whoever they're playing today. So we'll leave it right there. All right. Well, I hope you found your spot. Uh, this morning. And what we'll do as we do our sermon, after our sermon, we will have a special time, as mentioned at the first, to set apart Jim Shieldman to the, uh, to the gospel ministry of sorts, to the deacon ministry after much prayer and, and, and such there. And we will bring that up and uh, we'll have time for you to respond to that. But let's, let's dig into the word as we do it. You know, as I was preparing this week, how do you tackle these Ten Commandments? It sounds so easy. If you're not a pastor, you know, pastors only have one hour a week that they work. You know, that's the classic thought. But how do you take a, a, a commandment such as this, so big as it is, no other gods before me? Friends, there have been literally, I found a guy on sermonaudio.com that spent over 26 weeks on this one commandment alone. Twenty. Let that sink in, guys. That's from J- January 1 all the way to July 1st. I mean, that is a long time. This is so much, so much we won't cover today, and there's so much because God is uh, insearchable, and I want you to know that. But there are some people who don't believe that God exists at all. Do you know that? They are called atheists, but they are a small minority. They're a vocal minority, though, and though few in number, they are mighty in influence today. Many of you know this. Their voice is particularly heard in education, entertainment, in the colleges and universities, but on a very practical level, these people are maybe your classmates, they may be your next-door neighbors, they may even be sitting next to you in the pew right now. What am I talking about? We are talking about atheists, those who deny that there is a God at all. And friends, as we look at the first commandment, it is something that we really need to be aware of. In its simplest form, atheism is just a denial that God exists, that there's anything out there. 
all these people say is that there's not even a possibility. We just we're, we live, we bury, and we, we die at that point. You're going to see a picture pop up here on the screen here in just a minute of the Kansas City Atheist Coalition. Kansas City Atheist Coalition, if you go to their website, man, they look really good. They're at walks, they're at all these sorts of things, and they have a little thing on there of what is atheism. And, and, it, and it panders it nicely, but the, the simple truth of the matter is this. They deny God flat out. They are nice people. Please don't get me wrong. They help with lots of things. But friends, the Bible says in Isaiah 40, verse 18, that there is no God like our God. And who can we compare him to? There is no God but our God. And so to be sure, these people are passionate in their beliefs. They're dogmatic in their convictions, and they're rock solid in their commitments. But yet one wonders, how do you truly get to the point, by pure reason, that you believe that there is really no God at all? Maybe you know someone who, does anyone know anyone who's an atheist? Uh, several, you raise your hands. Actually, if you look at Europe, many of the European countries have gone post-World War II now to pure atheism. Almost half of countries, such as uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, and others, are almost, by the statistics at least, half atheist. So friends, if we have this thing called atheism, we're looking at the first commandment, no other gods before me, how do these coincide? Well, as Christians, the real threat to us, friends, is not atheists or atheism, but the real threat as Christians is when we get comfortable in our hearts and cohabitate with our idols in our hearts and let our hearts be okay with the very idols that God will say in this commandment not to do. Sometimes as Christians, we get so focused on other people groups that we forget to guard our very heart, our very home, which is before the Lord. My point is this. Take a good hard look. Get beneath the surface. Pursue questions that expose life and what that means. Because David said it right in Psalm 14.1. He who says in his heart there is no God is a fool. The problem isn't with the mind. The problem is with the heart. And we'll see that today as we look at the first commandment. We don't want there to be a God, or at least not a God like the one that's revealed in Scripture. To this God, we want to say no. But in rejecting this God, we actually are the ones who play the fool. Christian, what were we made for? We are made to know this one God. What is our aim in life? To know this one God. And what is the best thing in this life? It is to know this one God today. I hope that's your aim today. So four things we're going to look at today in the first commandment. Four things. And what I want to caution you against is I'm going to say a word here that many of you are going to latch on to and add it to your checklist. That's not the goal. Listen to last week's sermon. The goal of what we looked at, the purpose of the law is not just to do another thing but it is to grow in obedience to the commands and the grace revealed in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at four duties today, and I know we're getting it up on the screen as the computer works. Four duties today. Friends, we have a duty from this first commandment to have a God. Pastor, really, that's all you have in your first point is to have a God? Yeah, absolutely, because you have to have one. We're going to fight against atheism in the first point. And secondly, you have to have a duty of having the Lord Jehovah as your God because that fights against idolatry and ignorance. And thirdly, we're going to see that only the true God can be and should be your God because we're going to fight against polytheism, the belief of many, many gods. And then we're going to see that we must have as a duty to the first commandment to be centered in Christ, the true God with a sincerity and a devotion. And that fights against profaneness and half-heartedness. These commandments are going to hit a square in the face, right? They have me this week. I don't know if they will you. I pray they do. But if you're able to stand this morning, we do in honor of God's word. If you'll stand as we read uh, just three verses from Exodus chapter 20. 
verses 1 to 3. Look at the first commandment today. First commandment today. And it says this coming out of the English Standard Version. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the land of the house of slavery. And if you know it, if you'll say it with me and read it with me, you shall have no other gods before me. Say that one more time. You shall have no other gods before me. It all begins here. It all begins here. Let's pray as we start off this morning. Father, this is a uh, very vast topic. For Father, you are a vast God, and we will spend all eternity going crazy in a gospel, God-glorifying way, just even getting one smidgen of who you are. Yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself, even on this Mount Sinai in Egypt so many years ago to the Israelites as they were taken out of bondage. Father, I pray that what is spoken here today is honorable to you. I pray what is spoken here today is uplifting to your son, that your son becomes more beautiful to us, even though he doesn't have to be because he is eternally beautiful, because you are the perfect, thrice holy God. Yet, Lord, in our sinfulness, we need to be reminded about how great, how awesome, how amazing, how loving, how faithful, how good, how jealous, how merciful, how just, how wrathful you are. Father, you are an amazing God. Father, we especially pray for those friends of ours who say there is no God. Father, I thank you that nature testifies to that. Thank you their conscience says otherwise. Yet, Lord, I pray that they find in Christ the only solution. Because, Father, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And there is none that come to you except through your Son, Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name, in that name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. As we come to this time, I just want to remind you that these commandments are very important, folks. These commandments are very important very important. We are not saved by keeping these commandments, but these commandments show us what is wrong with our heart, and by doing so, these commandments give us clues as to how to fix it. Look, here's the promise. If you understand these commandments, we are going to study the next 10 weeks leading up to the Sunday after Thanksgiving, then you will have a gateway to fulfillment, purpose, freedom, and joy. You will, but it starts with understanding them how they are. So let's look at this first part here. The first duty this commandment puts out, when I say that word duty, let me just clarify what I said a minute ago. This is not church people. This is some of you struggle with this. I struggle with this to a degree. This is not just something that you do to be a better Christian. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not just something you do to be a better Christian in the sort of Bible belt. We're like on the uh, uh, little hole of the Bible belt. We're not the buckle of the Bible belt, so to speak. We're kind of on the fringes of the Bible belt. But friends who have been Christians a long time, please hear me clearly. This is not something you do just to be a better Christian or just to, well, this is what a super Christian does. There's no super Christians. There are super sinning Christians that need the grace of God day by day. But I do pray, as I say the word duty, that you understand this is not to be taken lightly, but this is not something you do to get in better relationship with Christ. Christian, you are in a right standing with Christ at the moment you believe in Christ. I hope you know that. It doesn't take some super crazy thing except that Christ saves you and the Holy Spirit changes your heart. These are duties that come out of a heart willing to obey what God has said to do. So the first thing we see in these passages is that you must have a God. He says, you have no other gods before me. Friends, never before has there been such a widespread of belief as atheism is today. Atheists wear their own belief like a badge of honor. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, they will also reap. Destruction of a religion breeds immorality and wickedness. We can look at church history. We can look at world history to even prove that simple fact. 
But atheism, almost like the Church of Scientology, has taken on very much a, a PC-related thing. I'm going to say names, and raise your hand if you've heard these people before. Richard Dawkins, anyone ever heard that name before? A very smart man. Timothy Hitchens, anyone ever heard that name before? Um, boy, I, I lost the list. I, I didn't get it on the page. But there are several notable Hollywood stars who we love as actors who say there is no God. There's even a handful of once famous pastors that have now claimed that there is no God, there is no real person named God, and therefore we should not follow these things. The lies of Satan have only gotten more sophisticated and intellectual and entertained as we go through this time. It is very rare for someone just to come out and say, I believe there is no God. In fact, what most people do is it just comes in as a philosophy of a society. And atheists and those who fall in their camp are more aggressive, more committed, and more effective than we are as Christians in a lot of areas. I mean, really think about the influence this goes with as they deny the first commandment. Ranks of devoted atheists are swelling. They're evolutionists, they're humanists, and they're naturalists. And they cater to a society that says, who needs an old dead uh, god from 2,000 years ago? And it's uh, those bumper stickers, have you seen those, where the uh, Darwin, uh, Darwin fish or something is eating the Christian fish? You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you have seen those. But you know, it's uncommon to see Christians as examples anymore. In fact, most Christians, if they're portrayed in media at all, are shown as simple, small-minded people who just are kind of biffing around life, like, oh, kind of, I don't recommend this, but a Homer Simpson-type Christian is what people, most people think of today. Friends, I'm here to tell you that Christianity is not only the most defensible religion in the world, it is also the most historically accurate one, and therefore we know that as the culture portrays our faith as something completely opposite of the first commandment, we live in a society that reminds us they hate God to the very core. They hate God. And atheism has become the state religion of our society without even becoming the state religion. You say, well, they're atheists. Do they really have a religion? Yes. Friends, their religion is believing that you came out of a molten mass of lava and somehow uh, millions of years ago became a human. That is a religion, friends. It's called evolutionism, and it's also called atheism to some degree. But friends, we have to remind ourselves that Hebrews eleven six reminds us of this. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, and here's the phrase, must believe he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. How do we follow the first commandment? We must have a God, and that God must be the God of Scripture. The starting point of atheism is, is the opposite. It's a purposeful violation of the first commandment. It's a leap of faith that denies both God's existence and who God says he will be through his people. The bottom line is this. If you choose unbelief because you want anything other than God, you are showing yourself to be in violation of the first commandment. And Romans 1 says it this way, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Friends, there's a philosophical atheism that believes that uh, it affects what you believe, but there's also, Christian, let me remind you, there's also a practical atheism, a claim to love God but deny it in a lifestyle. Titus 1.6 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, they are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Actually, I quoted the wrong verse there. It's actually Titus 1.5. But um, Titus 1.5 talks about how they are debased in their minds and they know not the one true God. Christian, it is as possible for you to be an atheist as it is someone to deny God. How do you do that? You do that when you say you love God, but you live directly opposite of him throughout the whole rest of the week. That's practical atheism. Have you ever thought of it about that way? Christian, it is possible for you to know Christ and be an atheist in the way you live out your life. 
scary thought, isn't it? But it's very, very true. The truth is, many people who claim Christ are practical atheists. Formally, they recognize God exists. Yeah, there's got to be a God out there, a guy upstairs, something like that, but won't have him as God over every area of their lives. They don't love him, they don't want his authority, and they maintain an image of religion, coming to church, going to Bible study, posting Christian things on Facebook, like those ones that say, if you repost this five times, you'll be blessed. Uh, Friends, I'm blessed because I know the Lord God, amen? Belief in God as long as they don't have to bow to his authority. And friends, I want to remind you this morning, and this is the practical point, I know the screen is up and down, and that's fine, I'll read it for you. The practical takeaway is this. For me, becoming an atheist would be a non-act. It's like falling off a cliff. There's no drama to it in a sense. But to stay a Christian is a mighty work of God. And you need to know that, Christian. I'd rather be an atheist than a nominal, passionless Christian who has forgotten or even come to know the, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Look, if you know this one true God, Christian, you have the greatest truth the world has ever known. And yes, that gets me excited as a preacher. And I dance up here, and this is the only time you'll see me bounce up and down, because this is true. Atheism, I would rather be an atheist who flat out denies God. I want nothing to do with him than to be a lukewarm, cold-hearted, nominal, passionless Christian who has forgotten the truth about what God has done. I pray that that's your heart too. And I don't say that. I point five million fingers at my heart, because I'm looking at this this week saying, okay, Lord, how many times this week have I counseled someone or, or prayed for someone as just that very phrase that I just read? Friends, we all break this commandment. But I pray if you're a Christian that you ask yourself, Lord, am I living such a way by your spirit, by your grace, that I am not cold-hearted to the very fact that Jesus loves me? We, I sing this to our daughter almost every night. She almost gets mad we sing it so much, and, and you pray for me in that. But Jesus loves me, this I know. For the what? The Bible tells me so. Friends, if there's no better news on a rainy, kind of weird fall day that we're having, praise God that you know Christ. But Christian, I pray that you pray that every part of your life is not your practical atheist. God, I believe you on Sunday, but I'm going to live like the devil the rest of the week. If that's your tenor of life, then 1 John would say you may not know Christ, but if you do, pray, repent, ask for his forgiveness, and he will give you that heart. There was a great story about an atheist uh, that came out, uh, and this will be the last point of atheism. But an atheist said, if there is a God, uh, and there's a, may he prove himself by striking me dead right now. And the, nothing happened, and he looked at the Christian and said, you see, there is no God. But the Christian responded, you've only proved that he is a very gracious God indeed. <laughs> it's very true. Friends, Satan isn't an atheist. Satan is as real and he knows. It is better to believe in a God and have the problem of evil and the things we struggle with sometimes as Christians, than to be an atheist and have no way to define evil or whatever. Who does an atheist think? When something goes right, who do they think? I mean, friends, you have to have a God. You have to have a God is what this first commandment tells us. That's the first point. You must have a God to fulfill this first commandment. The second point is this. The second point is you must have the Lord Jehovah for your God. You must have the Lord Jehovah for your God. You see, having a God isn't enough. I hope you know that. People have gods all over the place. Christians today, we don't have wooden idols. Uh, I've told you before that uh, if you go to the Hare Krishna, I'll say this, they need witnesses. Uh, Five o'clock on Sundays, they have a vegan meal. I remember going as a seminary student down there to get free food. That was good as a seminary student because you don't eat much as a seminary student. It's a good weight loss program. But uh, I remember going down there several times and eating meals with them outside their little church. 
and uh, they would take us in occasionally. I just remember they had this big idol uh, to Krishna, and he's sitting folded, and there's just a big idol, and there are pictures of all these uh, uh, gurus, as they call them, up on the wall, and just all these things. I just remember talking with them, how do you know this is true? And they just, they just said, we, we pray, Hare, 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 Krishna. Maybe you've seen them dance on the plaza at 6 p.m. on Saturday nights, maybe. You know who they are. And they just say, we, we chant this over and over to try and work ourselves into a mental state that we might connect with the gods. Friends, it's not just about having a god. It's about having the right god. Look back at Exodus 20. It says very clearly here, this first commandment, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. If the first duty forbids atheism, the second duty rules out idolatry and ignorance. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty two. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? No other God like our God. Friends, he is exclusive. He is absolutely exclusive. There's no one who can take his place. 1 Samuel 2, 2. Hannah, when she prayed, you remember that story? Many of you moms know this story very well. She prayed for a child. God granted her that gift, and this was her prayer back to God. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Friend, from beginning to end, we find that our God is unique. He is exclusive. 1 Kings eight sixty, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, for there is no other. With Solomon's prayers, he dedicated the temple. Let me just be absolutely clear. God has no competition. God, if he could win the Super Bowl every year, has won it. If he could win the World Series every year, he's won it. If he could be the 16th seed in the NCAA tournament that upsets the number one seed every year, he's done it. God has no competition. God will tolerate no pretenders either, no fakes. God has elevated himself above everyone else because he is God and God alone. He has no one he answers to, no one above or beyond, left or right. But yet in our culture, we have gods of entertainment, don't we? We have gods of money. We have gods of sex. We have gods of diversions. And let me be very clear, I'm not suggesting if you have a TV set in your house that you are breaking this commandment or follow sports. But the moment anything else takes over, you have become guilty of idolatry. Christian, can I ask you this morning, what one thing are you least likely to give up if God were to ask you, I'm going to take something away from you? Is it the people you know? Is it your pastime, your strength, your health? What if God asked you to get rid of it for his glory? What would you do? What would I do? What would we do? What if God came to us and said, you, well, I'm going to take this away from you? And what if God, what if, God doesn't even ask sometimes. God in his sovereignty sometimes will take something away from you for a period or forever. Would you give it up gladly? Would you give it up with delight in the Lord? Or would you swag your hand at him and say, Lord, no, 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 no. As God, friends, he has the right to be first in our lives. If you yourself are resenting God for something he's held back to you, then you made an idol out of that. That's why the commandments come full circle. Can someone tell me the 10th commandment? Anybody? Say it again. Thou shalt not covet. Isn't it interesting that God starts with, I am the Lord, I am the only one, and he ends with coveting? Everything comes full circle in these commandments, guys. Coveting is a sin, and it comes full circle. Friend, if there's anything in my heart or yours that desires 
that thing more than God, or we would be upset if he took it away, then that thing or that person or that pastime or that whatever fill in the blank has become an idol in your heart, and you must repent. Matt read this, but 1 Corinthians 8, 4, Therefore, as to eating food offered to idols, we know that no idol has existence and that there is no God but one. Friends, I'm grateful for that, aren't you? I am so thankful, Christian, that you do not have to wake up and try and please some set of gods that you have no idea who is out there. But Christian, I do want to ask you, if you are so crushed that God took something away, be careful, that is an idol in your heart. Why is it so hard then to give those things up? Why is it? Because if we really got how worthy God is, we would think otherwise. But we think otherwise all the time. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 14. Are there any among you, Jeremiah said, of the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? But are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. Every good thing comes down from God, friends. The family that you have, the pastimes you enjoy, uh, the food you eat. But 1 Timothy 6.17 tells us that as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, for those taking score, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides with everything to enjoy. Friends, I said this rules out idolatry. If you care more about what other people think than what God thinks, then that makes you something of a hypocrite. If you are more satisfied with the people-pleasingness of you and what people say about you, think about you, perceive about you, consider about you, then you have an idol of your heart of self-idolatry and worship. You are more accepted in Christ, Christian, remember, than you ever have been and or ever will be. But this commandment also rules out ignorance. To have God is to be a God to us. We must know Him and our knowledge must be true. The right worship of God presupposes we know our object of worship. If we know this God, we can't just walk in and just blindly worship Him. We have to worship Him as He is. Isn't this what happened in Acts chapter 17? Paul's walking around Athens. Has anyone ever been to Athens in here, just out of curiosity? A couple of you folks, Lauren, Maisel... Uh, Athens is a unique, I've never been there myself, but, you know, Paul walks into Athens and he sees all these gods and these idols and then he sees that one note and it's to a what? You you guys remember the story? It's to an unknown God. And they lit a fire, so to speak, burned incense before this God, hoping to cover all their bases. Kind of like a Hail Mary prayer, in a sense, or or a a football team throwing a, a pass at the very end, hoping to get in the end zone. If you're Oklahoma State fan two weeks ago, I'm sorry. I'll just leave it right there. But if you don't take time to know what God has said about himself, we are no better than the pagans of Acts chapter 17 who set up an idol to the unknown God. Friends, corporate worship, this is up on the screen for you. But corporate worship, what you are doing here today is so important. That's why we don't just say come to church because of tradition. Don't just come to church because it's habit. But corporate worship is designed to remind you once for all what your real needs are and how these needs are fully met in God and God alone. That's what church is all about, friends. You coming to church fulfills the command to come to church. Yes, that's that checklist. Sure, don't neglect gathering together, Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. But it also sets your heart back on the right place, that it's not about the idols that are in your life or your heart. But yet today in Christianity, we have substituted tradition for truth. There are religions walking around that are a clear violation of the first commandment. And we'll get there a little bit later as well. But we also have substituted entertainment as our God. 
We have taken churches to cater to man's wishes more than God's wishes, friends. I hope you know that. Be very, very careful why you choose a church if you are picking a church you're visiting with us today. If God calls you to this church, we will say a hearty amen. You are welcome here anytime. But one thing you will never see us do as a staff, as a church, is to cater to man's wishes. What do I mean by that? That means uh, having Elvis jump out on stage and sing the Hallelujah Chorus. Friends, that is idolatry. I'm sorry to say. There are churches who dress up and demean the name of God just by being silly during worship. Do you see how these commandments really push our buttons? Friends, we do not do church a certain way here, not to be traditionalists, not to be puritanical, not to do these ways, but because there are no other gods before us because you can easily turn a church into a country club where it's all about the members. That's why most churches die. Do you realize that? Most churches die because it's all about what the members want and not reaching out to what God has said to do. That's an idol. And friends, as we worship, we must have the one true God. But please, please pray for our church, Christian, that we never turn our church into a bastion of entertainment that becomes a draw for people. But may the God of Scripture, and He is enough, is He not? To draw people in. That doesn't mean we can't joke up here and have a smile and do those things. But if, if we are drawing people by what we're offering them when we are offering them a false God, because God doesn't need any help drawing people in. Yet He allows us to be used by Him. Do you see how easily in American culture this commandment has already been broken? And even in our own hearts. You know, I'm not, I, 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 I debated whether to use this illustration, but Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Anybody watched that movie before? Most of you have. Ferris Bueller's Day Off is about a movie of a guy, uh, Ferris Bueller, who goes with his best friends around. It's just a, it's just a, it's a silly 80s movie, let's just say that. But he has a best friend named Cameron, and Cameron and his friends take his dad's car, which you see up there on the screen, out for a drive, and his dad idolizes him. That's, that's a small way to say that. I'm looking at my 80s friends here, uh, those who grew up in the 80s, all on the front row here. And, and they get back to... Uh, Cameron's dad's garage, and, and Cameron realizes that they have put miles on Cameron's dad's car, and his dad's going to know it. And so Ferris Bueller gets this great idea that if they can get it up on the jack and then reverse, put it in reverse, and put a brick on the gas, it's going to reverse the miles. Well, those of you who are car people, I'm not a car person, but you realize that's not going to work, right? You, so if you go over your rental car mileage, just pay the money. It doesn't work. But Cameron notices it doesn't work, and so he goes on a tirade about how his dad's going to beat him. He's gonna, he loves about his car more than him, and so he gets emotional, and he begins to break and smash the car, and eventually in his outburst, he doesn't notice the car is starting to come off the jack, and that's what happens in the window, and it goes, <laughs> boom, down in the ravine, just like that. And you've seen the movie. You know this happened. And it, the car is completely ruined, and at first Cameron is scared of his dad's reaction, but as Ferris and his girlfriend are leaving, he sees this actually as a good thing because he's going to tell his dad how he feels and he realizes that that idol has actually provided him a chance to finally talk to his dad. Isn't that an interesting thought? It took the breaking of a car for a teenager to feel like he could talk with his dad. That's a whole other sermon. My friend, may God break all of our idols in such a way, such as that, so that we can worship him as he is. This is the longest point, I promise you that. But friends, sometimes it takes us, and it takes intervention of God using other people to point out things and say, man, this isn't good. I'm not suggesting if you have a glass, if, if someone has a glass garage like this, can I come and look at it? Uh, that's pretty amazing in itself. 
But I'm not suggesting you reverse your car and break it. But what I am saying is we be like Gideon. You may not remember this about Gideon. We remember the, the putting out the fleeces and all those things. But one thing Gideon did is he broke down his father's altar to Baal and then went on to do the Lord's will. Friends, maybe someone in your life has pointed out something to you, much like Cameron and his friends did about his dad's idol so they could have a heart-to-heart chat. Maybe, some, maybe you need to pray this week, Christian, that God would show you that Lord Jehovah is the only true God and remind you of that in some way. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, I'll leave that up to you to decide. But uh, it's an interesting illustration nonetheless. Let's move on to the third and fourth. And these are our shortest points, and we'll close from here. Number three. Friends, his first duty is to have a God. The second duty is not just to have a God, but to have the Lord Jehovah, the only God, as your God. And so what does the third one require us? Is that we must have the only true God for your God. And this is where we'll specifically get into verse 3 a little bit more. But Luke 4, 8, isn't it interesting that Jesus, as he was being tempted, said to Satan, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. So friends, this... This one, the first one, we fought atheism. The second duty, we fought idolatry and ignorance. And the third one, we're fighting polytheism. That's a big word. You can take that to the bank for you. Uh, take that to your chiefs watching this afternoon and say, uh, uh, chiefs and jets, don't be polytheists. Worship the Lord your God. And I don't know if they'll hear you, but it's a good thing to say nonetheless. But what does this forbid? This duty forbids the worship of like the Samaritans do. Let me read you a section of scripture. 2 Kings 17.32 says, They feared the Lord and appointed among them all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines and the the high places. So they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations for among whom they had been carried away. Isn't it interesting that the writer of 2 Kings writes down that they feared God, but they also appointed priests to these high places. They appointed people to false religions. Friends, this is another big word I'll throw at you. It's called syncretism. It's where you mingle false and true religion. It's a huge problem in American churches today. People don't mind having God as their God, but they don't like having God as the exclusive God of Christianity. Example is in Hinduism. My wife has been in India as a missionary. She knows this. But in India, it's very tempting as a missionary because people want to come to Jesus. Now, this is going to sound funny to you, but uh, even in chapel this last week, uh, I don't, I don't know if you were there on Wednesday at, at chapel, but uh, chapel he shared um, about, the missionary shared about a time when he was in Africa, and the, he brought before all these people the news that Christ is king, and they talked amongst themselves, and John Moody, wherever you're at, you know that's how Africans respond, they talk amongst themselves, and they kind of make a decision for the majority, and he talked about how they were ready to accept Jesus as Savior, they wanted to, to, to do this thing called Jesus, and the missionary wisely went up to him the leader of the pack, and he said, no, listen to what I am saying. I am saying that you must get rid of all your idols. You must get rid of all your pagan worship. You must get rid of all your statues and break them and follow them. Could have cut the knife, cut the atmosphere with a knife right there. And the missionary went on to share that these people talked and talked among them, and only 24 out of, I think, like 360, if I'm not mistaken, if I heard him correctly, said, okay, we're going to follow this guy named Jesus. And in India, it's the exact same way. Sometimes people just want to add Jesus as another God to their gods and gods and gods and gods. Friends, let's hit home. And when I'm about to say this, I mean no ill will to anyone who's in this camp. But Roman Catholicism does this, friends. 
Roman Catholicism has priests parade around in garbs and robes, and they act as the mediator between you and holy God. Friends, be careful of that idolatry. I say that with respect. Please understand of their right to worship. But friends, we need no mediator except Jesus and Christ and him alone. For there is one mediator and there is one God and there is one person go between, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, the God, man, Jesus Christ. That's why we do not have a confessional with respect back there in that back room. There's a lot of cool stuff back there if you ever go back there. I'm thinking of our uh, busy hands ladies. But friends, this is why we don't need a priest with respect to priests to believe what they believe. This is why we don't have to have that. This is why we break idols. But you see how over time, even Christianity was melded into a man-centered view of Christ and God to go through. This is why we don't, again, with respect to Catholicism. This is why we do not pray to Mary. And a good Catholic will say we don't pray to Mary, but yes, they do. Read their catechism. It's so clear. You don't have to not believe this. Friends, we go through Christ, and that is it. There are no other gods before me, including men, including images, including idols. Break them, just like that. I told you it's a tough sermon, isn't it? Anyone else want to get up here and preach? I'll, I'll take it. I'll sit down. This hits home. You have to have God as the one true God. That's why he says that phrase before me. Now look back at your Bibles, friends. He says, no other gods before me. Now, if you read this straight up, you could just say, well, okay, this makes sense. Then I just don't, I, I, you know, uh, God's top, right? God's good, number one. That's good Bible, right? But I can have all these other things in my life. No, the literal reading of this is before my face. It's before my face. It doesn't mean you can add God to just a list of gods, but God must not be just at the head He must not just be among other gods. He must be the only God that you have, or you have broken this commandment. Do you see that? Friend, and that's why, and Megan, I'll go ahead and have you put that up. That's why, as we talk about church growth, friends, we are in a revitalization effort at this church on many levels. We are seeing health that God is bringing to us on many levels. But if you want to find out a church's idols, and I'm speaking here in any church, try and change some things. Amen? (laughs) Or simply by growing, because growth always entails change. Friends, as we grow, we're going to have to make some changes with our sanctuary and things. We are maxing out almost every service every time. Praise the Lord for that. We'll have to make some changes. But friends, we need to hold forth Christ as God, and He can't be added to our lives. There's no argument or qualification for that. He is it. There's no more. And as we pray, I pray, and we want to go patiently and slowly. And I admit we have gone faster in some areas as a church because we needed to to shore up some areas. One of those is our marriage covenant. Last June, after a month of being here, we decided to go ahead and update our marriage policy. Why? What happened last June 2015, friends? Do you remember? June 2015, one of the last decisions of the Supreme Court was to make marriage between man and man, woman and woman. They redefined what marriage was. We shored that up. We increased that. There are some changes as a church we will make faster than others because it's what the Bible will require of us. There are other changes that we will make very slowly, and we will talk about those as we go through. But I want you to know that as we pray through change, we are not here to change a culture to be hip or traditional or whatever is in between, but we are here to be gospel-centered, right? That's what we're here to do. So in doing that, we have to be patient. But friends, God will allow no other God in His presence. To have Him as your God, you must rid yourself of all other gods. Not polytheism. I'll end on this. Number four. Friends, we have to fight against atheism. We have to have God as our God. We have to have the Lord Jehovah for your God. We must have only the one true God. And finally, we must have the one true God and serve Him with sincerity and devotion. Worship of Him demands we worship Him with our whole heart. 
Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus affirmed this as being the greatest commandment when asked, and how much that is true. But this, this commandment rules out profaneness and half-heartedness. Profane means that you are, don't care about what's holy or sacred. Profane means that you stand for one thing on Sunday and you live a totally different way on Monday. To be a profane person is to speak outside the temple, literally. It's, it's something that Hebrews twelve sixteen says that Esau, you remember the story, the great story of Esau and Isaac? Esau went out and traded his uh, birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. Any lentil soup fans in the house? Praise the Lord. Uh, my wife and I were joking last night how I don't like soup for a main meal, and that might be true, but uh, lentil soup is not a main meal for me. Pizza, hamburgers, chicken wings, all those types of things, and chicken nuggets, of course, fall into that as well. But you see how profane even Esau was for a bowl of soup. Friends, we have to realize that when we serve Christ, we can easily turn ministry into an idol even within this church. Our idol can be how long we've served in a position or how few times we've missed church or, or, or how great we have uh, led people to the Lord. Those are great things, but they can become profane because we can take a sacred thing and make it unsacred by simply letting pride fall into this. You see how easily this commandment is broken. We can also do things half-heartedly. This commandment speaks against that. We can neglect that which is holy. We can go to church and only be partly there. We can be thinking about lentil soup as our lunch instead of thinking about what's being said with the sermon, right? Please don't think about lentil soup uh, unless you really, it's not that bad. But you can do half-heartedly as well. You can have other gods before you and just serve God with a whole heart. Friends, let me remind you as you work, as you go to work this week, don't serve half-heartedly in the job position that God has given you. Serve with a whole heart. Don't seek promotion necessarily. Don't seek to climb the corporate ladder. Those aren't bad things in and of themselves if God blesses you. But be careful that you don't half-heartedly go to work. Paul told the slaves in, in Rome at that time, one-third of the population, estimates say, were slaves. And he said, slaves, obey your masters and work with all your heart as unto the Lord. Friends, you may have a half-hearted breaking of this commandment simply by just going through the motions through everyday life. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? Is it possible to watch the Royals game to the glory of God? I think it is. And it doesn't mean you have to throw everything at the screen when they put in Soria in the eighth inning every time and blow the game. You know, you Royals fans know what I'm talking about. Can you watch TV to the glory of God if it's clean, so to speak, and biblically permissible? Absolutely. Can you change? I've used this illustration of it. Can I change a diaper half-heartedly? Oh, my goodness, if there's anything in this world I can, that can definitely be done half-heartedly. And half-stentially, too, if that's a word. You know that. But be careful as you serve, that you serve the Lord in whatever He calls you to do with true sincerity and true devotion. Friends, and many of us do that. It's, you see, we break this commandment all the time. See, Darren, what's the hope in this? What's the silver lining? The silver lining is, friends, is that we have a God of grace. He doesn't cut us off because we don't follow every bit of every time. He doesn't give us an excuse to sin. But aren't you grateful that Christ forgives you as you are and takes you back? Most gods will never do that. And friends, as we close, and I will close with this, I just want to encourage you this week that as you pray through your life that you consider how God can use this first commandment in your life. God is so good. I'll just end it right there. Let's pray. We're going to do a song. Then we're going to have the blessing, Jim, and I see